Welcome once again to Behind the Knife's Abside series. As a reminder, you can find the podcast companion to the Abside series on Amazon. Uh, just search for Abside or search for Behind the Knife, and you'll see the Behind the Knife podcast companion so you can follow along and uh, augment your studying for this year's Abside. And as, as always, you can keep up to date with uh, the content we're putting out by uh, fi- finding us on Twitter, following us on Twitter, uh, finding us on Facebook, uh, watch our YouTube channel for some content uh, that we'll be putting out there, and please subscribe. As always, we appreciate your feedback and your reviews. Okay, we're going to jump right into this for pancreas for the abscite. It's a very small organ, but it's a very big topic for the abscite. So, John, uh, let's jump right into it with a little bit of uh, pathology, uh, most common being acute pancreatitis. What are the most common causes of acute pancreatitis? So, the most common causes of acute pancreatitis are alcohol and gallstones in the United States. Okay, and woo. So, gallstone pancreatitis, uh, we mentioned gallstones is, is one of the most common causes of acute pancreatitis. We talked about this a little bit in our hepatobiliary section, but what's your main principles for treatment of gallstone pancreatitis? Yeah, so once the pancreatitis is somewhat resolving, you should clear the duct with either an ERCP or an intraoperative cholangiogram, as well as do a cholecystectomy during the same admission. Yeah, and that's going to be the key principle for that. So we talked a little bit earlier, go back and listen to the hepatobiliary area about how exactly to clear the duct and what the thinking is behind or or what the um, philosophy is behind clearing the duct with gallstone pancreatitis. But cholecystectomy during the same admission, don't let those patients go home. There's a very high chance of recurrence, serious recurrence uh, in a a 30-day interval. So, John, uh, this was a big topic of our last year's Absite review, but the Atlantic Atlantic classification for post-pancreatic fluid collections. uh, It's a new way of kind of breaking down uh, acute pancreatitis. So, can you walk us through the Atlantic classification? Yeah, and this, like I said, is a new thing that a lot of older surgeons are still working on uh, getting down because they used to classify it differently. The easiest way to go about this is to look at it as a non-necrotizing or necrotizing pancreatitis. And under the non-necrotizing pancreatitis, you have two different categories. You have acute peripancreatic fluid collection, where it is a fluid collection that's uh, less than four weeks old, or you have a pseudocyst, which is greater than four weeks under the necrotizing pancreatitis category, you have a acute necrotic collection or fluid collection that's less than four weeks old, uh, or you have a uh, walled-off necrosis, which is considered anything greater than four weeks old. Yeah, and as, as we mentioned in our prior review, the way that this will happen is, is they'll probably give you a CT scan. They'll give you a patient with acute pancreatitis. They'll give you a CT scan. They'll give you the, the timing interval, and, and they'll ask you, what is this? So again, the first division is, is it necrotizing or is it non-necrotizing? If it's non-necrotizing and you see a fluid collection, you look at the time interval, less than four weeks, acute peripancreatic fluid collection. If it's greater than four weeks, that's when you can call it a pseudocyst. With necrotizing pericarditis, again, it's that four-week time cutoff. If it's less than four weeks, it's an acute necrotic collection. If it's over four weeks, it's walled-off necrosis. So not everything is a pseudocyst. If you see it, it looks like a pseudocyst on uh, the CT scan. If it's necrotizing, the answer is walled-off necrosis. So, uh, Wu, uh, for necrotizing pancreatitis, a common question is, do you treat these patients with antibiotics or not? So the answer is no. Uh, The only time you treat with antibiotics for necrotizing pancreatitis is if you also have infection. Okay, so no for necrotizing pancreatitis, yes for necrotizing pancreatitis with infection. So what are some signs then that you have an infection? So look for clinical signs such as fever, elevated leukocytosis, 
Um, but generally, you're going to want some form of uh, clinical. You're going to want some form of empiric evidence, and so get that CT guided FNA. Look for organisms, and then start treatment with imipenem. Yep, imipenem's the antibiotic you want. You beat me to my next question, which was what, what antibiotic you're going to choose. So for infected, you know, pancreatitis, infected necrotizing pancreatitis, the choice is imipenem. John, what's the step up approach? The step-up approach is a uh, came out of a recent 2010 JAMA article uh, that essentially showed that there are improved outcomes with delaying the OR uh, and essentially going through these four steps. So when a patient comes in with infected pancreatic necrosis, uh, the typical path was to take them directly to the OR. Now it's shown that we will take this patient to the ICU, fluid resuscitate them, give them nutrition, supportive care. The second step is to start antibiotics, and these are all done, obviously, simultaneously, uh, and then we want to drain this fluid collection that is found to be infected. At the third step, we will upsize the drain to really get that necrotic, nasty material outside from the retroperitoneum. And the fourth step is a video-assisted retroperitoneal drainage. And that would be your final, uh, final step, uh, which would be complete your debridement. Yeah. So you, if you look at, I, I know when I first started taking this test, if I was given the, the option of uh, necrotizing pancreatitis, infected necrotizing pancreatitis. They'd give you a CT scan, they'd show you air, they'd probably give you a, a biopsy that showed organisms. The answer would be open pancreatic necrosectomy. Um, and that wasn't that many years ago. Uh, but now, since this big JAMA article, the new standard of care, the things that show up on the boards is a step-up approach. So again, you're delaying the OR with, IC, with ICU admission, fluid resuscitation, nutrition, supportive care. You're adding antibiotics. You're percutaneous draining, which per, you used to never answer percutaneous draining for this on, on the test. But now that's the answer. Upsizing the drain and then your more minimally invasive approaches, the video-assisted retroperitoneal drainage. Okay, so moving on uh, to chronic pancreatitis. A little bit different than acute uh, pancreatitis, but woo, um, so what, are, what are some causes of chronic pancreatitis? So chronic pancreatitis is secondary to long-standing alcohol abuse, uh, to biliary tract disease, autoimmune, or idiopathic in nature. Okay, and how do these patients present? They present with persistent abdominal pain, weight loss, pancreatic insufficiency, which can cause malabsorption, steatorrhea, diabetes, uh, and all these patients have a history of one or more bouts of acute pancreatitis. Okay, and what do you see, you keep going, what do you see on imaging with these patients? So the standard is CT scan, and CT can confirm the diagnosis by demonstrating fibrosis, atrophy, and calcification of the gland. John, uh, what about, uh, is chronic pancreatitis, is that a risk for developing pancreatic cancer? Chronic pancreatitis does increase your risk of developing a pancreatic cancer. Okay, and how do you initially want to manage these patients when they show up with uh, chronic pancreatitis? So typically these patients won't come to a surgical services off the bat. You may be consulted for some other complication, but it's usually non-operative management. Uh, pain control is important. They uh, tend to be very painful in the epigastric region. Uh, nutritional management, uh, if they're currently using alcohol, make sure they abstain from alcohol in the future after um, discharge or whatnot. Uh, and then pancreatic enzyme uh, replacement. And, okay, and so we're going to move on a little bit to operative manage of chronic pancreatitis, which is a, a very complex topic. Um, and if you, if you want an in-depth discussion of surgical management of chronic pancreatitis, I would refer back to uh, Dr. our interview with Dr. Jeff, De uh, Jeff Matthews, um, who is a leader in the field, and he gives a very thorough discussion of your different operative options for chronic pancreatitis. But for the abside, really, there's two main categories of operations for chronic pancreatitis. Those that decompress an obstructed ductal system and resection of uh, the diseased tissue 
one or the other or a combination of the both. Um, so let's go through a few of the common options for the seen on the app side. So woo, the Pistot procedure, what is that? So the Pistot procedure is a decompressive procedure. It is a longitudinal pancreatic jejunostomy. Okay. And uh, John, the beggar procedure? So less well known as the Pistot procedure, but it's a resection of the pancreatic head down to the duodenum and either an end-to-end or side-to-side pancreatojejunostomy. Uh, it's a duodenal preserving, uh, preserving uh, pancreatic head resection. Yeah, so uh, resection, that's uh, bigger, or Baker's procedure, also known as the duodenal preserving pancreatic head resection, is, is a way to remember that. And woo, the uh, fray, procedure, fray procedure? So the fray procedure kind of combines the decompressive part of the pisto and then adds a little bit of a, a resection of diseased tissue. Uh, essentially, it's a lateral longitudinal pancreatic jejunostomy with an excavation of the pancreatic head. So you are coring out the head of the pancreas, but you avoid a pancreatic transection that's required of the Baker procedure. Okay, so which procedure you choose is going to depend on the particular morphology of the disease. So, John, walk me through some how can what's some different ways of thinking about this? How I decide what's the appropriate procedure. So starting with the Pusteau procedure, uh, which is indicated for large duct pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis, uh, where the duct is greater than six millimeters or not, uh, and then as well as the pancreatic head is normal, this is the procedure you want to do for something like that. If the if the pancreatitis is pancreatic head dominant, uh, with or without any duct dilation, you want to consider the Frey procedure. Now, if the distal pancreatic duct uh, is strictured. Uh, with normal or side branch changes and normal pancreatic head, then you can also just consider a distal pancreatectomy. Okay. And what about for, so yeah, let's just, let's go through those briefly just once again, so people understand. So again, there's, there's two different, there's decompressing dilated ducts and then there's resection of disease, of, of uh, diseased tissue. So if you're dealing with just dilated ducts and the pancreatic head is normal, well, then your answer would be the Pistot procedure because that's simple, that's decompression and you don't have to deal with the pancreatic head. If there is disease tissue in the head of the pancreas, then you have to do one of these other procedures that involve decompressing the duct as well as removing some of that diseased tissue. Um, and as John said, if it's a distal, um, if it's mainly involving the distal pancreas with strictures and side wedge changes, then maybe a distal pancreatectomy is the right answer. What about, you hear about this thing called minimal change pancreatitis. Um, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so this is unique because in these cases, resection or drainage are unlikely to help. So you should do a denervation operation. So essentially a bilateral thoracoscopic splanctinectomy. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about a, a common complication or a common sequela of either acute or chronic pancreatitis, and that's a pseudocyst, which uh, woo. So again, going back to that Atlanta classification, where does pseudocyst fall into that uh into that um, classification? So the first decision point was non-necrotizing versus necrotizing. So pseudocysts falls under the former, non-necrotizing. And then these occur beyond that four-week cutoff. So acute peripancreatic fluid collections were less than four weeks. Pseudocysts are greater than four weeks. Right. So this is that fluid collection after pancreatitis that's non-necrotizing that occurs after four weeks. Great. Um, okay, so John, uh, tell me a little bit about pseudocyst. Um, who who gets pseudocyst? Where is it more common? So pseudocysts are more common in chronic pancreatitis patients. However, they can occur after a patient who has had a single episode of acute pancreatitis. And what's your initial approach to this? 
The initial approach to a patient who has a, a newly formed pseudocyst is that you want to manage these expectantly for at least six weeks. Most of the uh, pseudocysts that develop will actually resolve in this time period, but it also gives us time to sit and wait and allow to the wall of the, the pseudocyst to mature. And then we can actually consider an intervention if the pseudocyst is enlarging or uh, symptomatic or greater than six centimeters. Yep, exactly. So you, you want to try to get them to a point where that, that wall can uh, develop uh, so that they will respond better to one of our interventions. And like you said, most will resolve. And the key kind of cutoffs for intervene are, of course, symptoms. Um, you know, if they continue to last without uh, past that kind of six week, three month mark or greater, you know, greater than six centimeters, that's kind of the generally four to six centimeters. But six centimeters definitely is kind of that generally accepted cutoff. Um, so uh, we know that these are often associated with other pancreatic duct abnormalities. So what's a key component to management? What do all these patients need before you take them to the operating room? Woo. Yeah, so in the preoperative setting, you want to get an ERCP or an MRCP to assess the duct. Yeah, so a lot of times they'll ask you, they'll, they'll give you kind of the situation of a patient with a pseudocyst. You know they need an intervention, but this is a, one of those famous what's the next step questions. So the next step is going to be image the duct. So it's either going to be an MRC or a, an ERCP. Uh, what, are, what are some different approaches to surgical management of, of pseudocyst? So there are several different options. Uh, one is the transpapillary endoscopic stenting. Another is endoscopic transluminal drainage. A third is open cyst gastrostomy. And a third and a fourth would be uh, laparoscopic cyst gastrostomy. Yeah, so there's a lot of different approaches, and it's going to depend on your experience, your institution, whether you have advanced endoscopic uh, capabilities. How I would typically approach these on the board scenario. So if I'm given a patient with persistent abdominal pain following pancreatitis and a contained fluid collection on the CT, um, I would, and again, we've met all those criteria. They're symptomatic. They're past the six weeks. You know, all those things we kind of said. Uh, first, I would image the ductal system first. So if that's the next step question, that's the ERCP or the MRCP. Um, and then, again, if it's been about six weeks, uh, open or lap, a cyst gastrostomy would probably be the answer I would choose. Um, okay, moving on. So uh, everybody's favorite, which is cystic neoplasms of the pancreas. How do these typically present? So Manninger actually found incidentally on abdominal CTs done for other reasons. Um, and then once they are found, MRCP will provide better characterization of the duct anatomy. Yeah, like so everybody's getting cross-sectional abdominal imaging. You'll, you'll pick up these little things. Um, so uh, the key is to get either, you know, a pancreatic dedicated triple phase CT scan or more commonly uh, an, an MRI, MRCP for better characteriza characterization of the duct anatomy. Um, what's the role of uh, endoscopic ultrasound for these? So EUS is actually very helpful as well. It allows for aspiration of the cyst fluid, and that can be analyzed for both CEA and amylase levels. Yeah, perfect. So how is that going to change your management, though? So you, you have something, you're maybe not sure whether it's completely benign or whether it has some lignant potential. Um, how do you kind of make that distinction? Yeah, so the CEA in particular, if you have very high CE level, CEA levels, such as greater than 190, uh, that would be consistent with a mucinous cyst. Uh, as far as the amylase level goes, high amylase uh, typically points towards a ductal communication, such as with a pseudocyst or an IPM. 
So, uh, you know, imaging characteristics for this, again, MRCP to, to get good imaging characteristics of this, adding the EUS to get an aspirate to find out what the CEA and amylase levels can kind of, can help you kind of steer one way or the other. So let's talk through some of these managements based on the different findings. So, John, let's say you have, you're dealing with a serous cystadenoma. Tell me a little bit about those. How do they behave? What are some of their characteristics and what do you do with them? So serous cystadenoma, uh, you would probably diagnose this when after you're doing your EUS and aspirates, you would get a low CEA. These are predominantly benign uh, uh, lesions. Uh, they're well, on imaging, you'd find them to be well circumscribed with characteristic uh, a central stellate scar. And they only need to be resected if they're symptomatic or growing on seroimaging. Yeah, so if they give you a cyst that, you know, is, again, we're all circumscribed, like John said, that, that central stellate scar on the imaging, that you have an aspirate that's low CEA, generally you do not need to resect these, especially on um, the boards type scenario. So, Wu, uh, what about mucinous cystic neoplasms? Uh, so, Jason, when you refer to mucinous, there is actually a distinction we need to make. Uh, one is there is a mucinous cystic neoplasm, but there's also a, a IPMN uh, that is an entirely different category. So, Let's focus in on the mucinous cystic neoplasms. Uh, these are important because they have malignant potential. Radiographically, they're thick-walled. They'll appear as a cyst, they will appear as a single cyst with internal septations. And when you get that EUS with FNA, they will have an elevated CEA level. The key here is that all mucinous cystic neoplasms should be resected in fit patients. Yeah, so they'll give you the aspirate, and they'll either say that it has an elevated CEA, um, or they'll say that you, that sees, you see mucin. Um, in your in your uh, aspirate, and that's a different category. Those have pretty decent malignant potential, so absolutely, all of those need to be resected. Now, you mentioned IPMN, uh, John. What's IPMN, and how how is it classified? So, IPMN or intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasm uh, is categorized, in my thought, into three different groups. You have a main duct IPMN, a branch duct IPMN, and then you also have your mixed type uh, mixed type M- IPMN. Mixed type is typically managed with main managed like a main duct IPMN. That's absolutely right. So you have your your main duct, you have your uh, branch duct, and then you have the mixed, which you treat like a main duct IPMN. So uh, tell me about first main duct IPMN. How how uh, what are those, and and how do you deal with those? So main duct versus branch duct. The main ducts have a higher risk of malignancy than the branch duct. You have an endoscopic visualization of the fish mouth papilla, and this is pathognomonic for a main duct IPMM. Surgical resection is indicated for all main duct or mixed type IPMMs due to their high risk of malignancy. Yeah, this is that fish mouth papilla. So you have the, the mucin secreting from the patulous uh, papilla. That is, uh, anytime there's anything that's pathognomonic, you know it's going to show up on an exam. So they may give you somebody who has a cyst in the, in the pancreas and they do an endoscopy and they see this finding. That is a main duct, interductal papillary mucinous neoplasm that needs surgical resection. Okay, uh, John, keep going with the branch chain. How do those behave and, and how do you go about dealing with those? So branch duct, like I previously mentioned, have a lower risk of malignancy to the main duct. Their management is based on the Fukuoka guidelines. And the decision resect is based on a multiple different things like any procedure you perform. It's based on the fitness of the patient, uh, the risk is tolerance of a big procedure, and then the individual characteristics. So you want to consider resection. So you'll take this patient to surgery for worrisome features. And these worrisome features are cyst size greater than three centimeters, a thickened cyst wall, 
non-enhancing mural nodules, lymphadenopathy, a main pancreatic duct greater than 10 millimeters, an abrupt change in the main pancreatic duct size with distal atrophy. So if you're looking at imaging and you have an endoscopic ultrasound, these worrisome features uh, would be mural nodules, like I mentioned, main duct involvement. One thing to note about branch duct IPMMs is that in young patients, the cyst cutoff size is greater than two centimeters due to the larger risk of malignancy. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. So with the other, you know, with the other lesions of the pancreas, the recommendations have been pretty straightforward. And it's this branch duct IPM that's a little bit special. And this is a this is going to be a favorite for um, especially oral board type scenarios, just because there is a lot of variability. But essentially, what it comes into is you have to balance, as with anything, balance the risk versus the benefits. It's not a benign surgery resecting parts of the pancreas. So you really have to weigh what's the risk of malignant potential in this patient with and the, the, have, it's a conversation with the patient. What level of risk are they willing to accept for themselves versus undergoing this procedure? But in general, if you see worrisome features, like John mentioned, the cyst is greater than three centimeters. There's a thickened cyst wall, mural nodules, lymphadenopathy, dilated pancreatic duct. These are all worrisome things that push you to intervene rather than just watch. If on the ultrasound you see mural nodules, main duct involvement, suspicious cytology, certainly that increases the risk of malignancy. And that's going to guide that conversation to, hey, I think we should resect this. Younger patients who are surgically fit, you may be willing to resect ones that are a little bit smaller, smaller than that three centimeter cutoff. So consider for, for, for cysts greater than two centimeters. But again, it's a conversation between the patient and the physician and the risk they're willing to accept. But those are kind of some general cutoffs to know for boards type scenarios. So, Wu, the patient's gender and the patient's age may clue you into to what you're dealing with because a lot of these run more common in different demographics. What's a way of kind of breaking that up and thinking about it? Yeah, so there's actually a mnemonic, the mother, daughter, grandmother sort of uh, sequence here. So solitary pseudopapillary lesions are generally in the youngest set of patients. Your daughters will get solid pseudopapillary lesions. Uh, people in the mother age range, so in their fourth and fifth decades, uh, will tend to get the mucinous type. Whereas older patients with a solitary pancreatic lesion think more in the line of serous uh, pathology. And so for these patients, if they're not symptomatic, you can simply observe and not have to intervene. Yeah, so these are just kind of you know general ways of breaking up and thinking about it, general guidelines. It's certainly not going to really guide your management. You still have to get all the Im- go through all the things, get all the imaging, you know, potentially get an aspirate. But yeah, exclusive, almost exclusively affects women, um, and the age may deal you whether or not. Maybe you're dealing with something benign versus maybe you're dealing with something a little bit more serious. And again, this is for cystic neoplasms that we're, that we're dealing with. So just just a way of, of uh, kind of a little uh, way to remember these. So moving on from our cystic neoplasms of the pancreas, let's move on to some solid tumors. And we'll start with the neuroendocrine tumors of the, of the pancreas or the peanuts. Um, these can also be a little bit complicated, but if you break them up, and they're, they're, they're definitely manageable. Uh, so Wu, what are just some general things to think about um, when it comes to neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas? Yeah, so peanuts are rare, but highly tested. They only make up 1% to 2% of all pancreatic tumors. Uh, frequently they're non-functional, uh, but they can also elaborate a number of bioactive peptides. So gastrin, glucagon, somatostatin, insulin, VIP, uh, think about all these, uh, peptides that are, are elaborated by the pancreas. 
Yeah, and so again, if these these are kind of a daunting subject, the, the peanuts, but uh, if you if you break them down, everything becomes manageable. So you think about think about the bioactive peptides that they secrete. If they're functional, their clinical presentation is going to follow those. So if you know what those do, it's easy. So first, let's talk about um, the most common, which is actually a non-functional pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor. Uh, Wu, or I'm sorry, uh, John, tell me a little bit about those. Um, what do we need to know? So the majority of non-functional pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are actually uh, malignant, about 60 to 90%. Most are discovered late due to their asymptomatic nature. Uh, they can be discovered incidentally or secondary uh, to like mass effects similar to the pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And they're generally very large at, during the discovery with a high metastasis rate. They're most commonly found in the head of the pancreas. And the patients with local regional disease uh, should undergo resection. Yeah, and as we move through these, everybody should be kind of visualizing. When I when we say a particular uh, tumor, you should be thinking about benign versus malignant, uh, what the risk of that is, their location, um, and uh, location within the pancreas. So evenly throughout the head, the distal, uh, and what the clinical syndrome is associated with them, um, and that'll that'll help. And those are all things that everybody should know because those are things that you may be asked. So a good way, and uh, you can get tricked because they may ask you, what's the most common functional tumor versus what's the most common tumor? Because the answer to that question is different. So Wu, what's the most common functional neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas? So the most, <clears throat> so the most common functional pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor is an insulinoma. And so what's the most common peanut? A non-functional. A non-functional. So you have to really look at the way the question's asked. Um, so just keep that in your mind as we're moving through these. So moving on to the most function, the most common functional, uh, neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas, insulinoma, woo. Uh, how do we think about those? Yeah. So most of these are benign. So 90% benign. They're located throughout the pancreas. So evenly distributed. Uh, and the syndrome they're associated with is Whipple's triad. So a fasting hypoglycemia. Neuroglycopenic symptoms, such as confusion, combativeness, seizures, visual changes, or loss of consciousness, as well as relief of these symptoms with the administration of glucose. Okay, so let's say we have somebody we suspect has an insulinoma. What are some biochemical tests that can help us confirm the diagnosis? So look for signs and symptoms with a plasma glucose of less than 55, uh, insulin level greater than 18, and a C-peptide that is 0.6 or greater as well as a pro-insulin level that's 5. or On top of these, look for a beta-hydroxybutyrate of 2.7 or less uh, and an increase in plasma glucose of at least 25 after the administration of glucagon. And finally, a negative urine test for... An, and finally, a negative urine test for an oral hypoglycemic. Now, I don't think they're asking each one of those individually on the boards, but it, for me, it's just good to know, like... I, the, all, the patient has to meet all those criteria in order to really meet the diagnosis of insulinoma. So there's a whole panel of a whole biochemical panel that goes into making this diagnosis. But certainly, the, you know, the big hits are knowing um, that there's symptoms associated with hypoglycemia, uh, that the insulin is high in insulinoma, obviously, and the C-peptide. Why is that important, Wu? So you want to think about whether this patient is driving down their own insulin level and glucose level, or if this is because in it, or if this is because of an exogenous source. Yeah, they'll always give you a for some reason a nurse. I don't know why they'll say a nurse presents with this, and and you have to kind of distinguish whether or not it's uh, they're it's self injecting with insulin 
versus whether or not it's uh, endogenous uh, or an insulinoma. Um, so that's, that's why that C-peptide is, is important. Uh, so if the biochemical tests are positive, uh, what do you need to do, John? So then we move on to our localization studies, uh, similar to pretty much any pancreatic lesion. So you want to get a triphasic pancreatic CT or an MRI. Uh, if they ask you which one's more sensitive, you're going to say they're equally. Uh, the second one is doing endoscopic ultrasound. If you're unable, so the third step is if you're unable to localize the tumor, do a selective intraarterial calcium injection with hepatic venous sampling for insulin. And then we want, then the important thing to note with insulinomas, unlike the majority of the peanuts, is that a somatostatin scintography is not effective in these tumors. Right. So this is the one where a somatic uh, somatostatin test is not going to help you. It will not localize. So it's a stepwise approach. So you try you start with your, your cross-sectional imaging, your CT, your pancreatic dedicated CT, uh, or your MRI. If you don't see anything there, then you move on to endoscopic ultrasound. Those are a little bit more sensitive. Um, and then you're going into the more invasive. So start with least and go to, to more invasive, which is your uh, selective intraarterial calcium injection and hepatic vein sampling for insulin. Uh, okay, so let's say you've made your diagnosis, you have your localization, and uh, Wu, how do you treat these? So treatment for insulinoma depends on location as well as your suspicion for as well as your suspicion for malignancy, and finally, the presence of any other tumors. Uh, so if you have a solitary, benign-appearing tumor, these can be treated simply with enucleation. If you have a distal tumor, that can be treated with a distal spleen-preserving pancreatectomy. And finally, if you have suspicion for malignancy, that would actually require a formal resection. Great. So uh, the majority of these are probably going to be solitary benign appearing lesions that you can that can be a nucleation, but definitely need to need to know the other steps too. Okay, moving on, John, gastronoma. What are some general general things to know about gastronoma? So about sixty to ninety percent of gastronomas are malignant. Uh, gastrin will increase the acid secretion from the parietal cells, and two thirds of these tumors are located within the gastronoma triangle. And what's that? What's the gastronoma triangle? So the gastronoma triangle is the junction of the cystic duct and common bile duct. Uh, the second wall is the junction of the second and third portions of the duodenum. And the third portion is the, or third wall is the junction of the neck and the body of the pancreas forming a triangle. Right. And again, as we're going through these, when we say, um, think about, are they mostly benign? Are they mostly malignant? How do they behave and where are they located? Those are key things you need to know. Those three things for each one of these. Um, okay, what's the clinical presentation, John? So these also present with a classic triad, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and weight loss uh, in the presence of peptic ulcer disease. So typically these patients are found after they've had longstanding ulcer disease and they finally get worked up. Okay, so let's say you have a suspicion. Uh, how do you make the diagnosis? So some of the diagnostic and confirmatory tests you can do for gastronomas is that you can measure a gastrin level. You can do this as a fasting gastrin level, which maybe has to be associated with a low gastric pH and a high basal output. Uh, so the use of PPIs and H2 blockers will actually raise your gastrin level. So you need to stop these prior to testing your gastrin level. Your fasting gastrin level, uh, greater than 1,000, uh, is diagnostic. Uh, elevated levels less than 1,000 uh, will usually take you to a secretin stimulation test. So gastronomas, if you have a gastronoma, will have a paradoxical effect on secretin. 
it will increase the secret uh, gastrin levels will actually increase greater than 200 with the administration of secretin versus decreasing in normal patients. So yeah, so like what's a normal reaction to secretin? So if I gave you secretin, what would happen to your gastrin levels? They would drop. They would drop. So in these patients with the gastrinoma, they respond paradoxically. So if you have the number greater than 1,000, and as you said, you have to have a low pH or a high acid output in their stomach, so they, they can't be taking a PPI because that's going to raise their gastrin levels. So, But if they have a true hypergastrin level uh, uh, state with a low gastric pH um, and their gastrin levels are greater than a thousand done you have your diagnosis but if they're in that kind of gray zone uh, you can do the secretin stimulation test exactly as you said okay so walk us through that's positive now you got to find the thing how are you going to localize it so like I said before it's it's similar you start off with your triphasic pancreatic CT or MRI Uh, the next thing is this where you would use your somatin receptor scintigraphy uh, which it's effective in gastronomas Next, you want to do an endoscopic ultrasound. And if you still can't localize it, similar to an insulinoma, you do a selective intraarterial calcium injection with hepatic venous sampling uh, for gastrin. Yeah, that's going to be a little bit institution-specific. But certainly start with your cross-sectional imaging, your somatostatin scan, ultrasound, then potentially selective arterial injection. Like I said, least invasive to most invasive. But let's say you do all that and you still can't find it. What, what, do, you, what do you do then? Well, this is the fun part for a surgeon. You get to take that patient to the operating room and try to find this thing in the OR. So you do an intraoperative ultrasound. You want to do a transduodenal palpation. Uh, you can do an intraoperative end- upper endoscopy with transduodenal illumination trying to find the mass. And then finally, if you still can't find it after all that, you can do a duodenotomy and then palpate the, uh, the head of the pancreas. Right. Again, you're searching within that gastronoma triangle to try and find this thing. Okay, John, what about treatment for these if you have a, tre- a tumor in the duodenal mucosa, uh, you can then do a nucleation and paraduodenal lymph node dissection. Uh, if you have a non-invasive tumor five centimeters or smaller and have the pancreas, you can do a nucleation with paraduodenal lymph node dissection. Tumors greater than five centimeters, will, uh, or if they're invasive and the head of the pancreas, will need a Whipple. If you have a tumor in the body or tail of the pancreas, then you can do a distal pancreatectomy. Yeah, so that's a little bit, I mean, these ha- these have a pretty high malignant potential, but you can't, depending on the location, depending on their depth of invasion, you can still nucleate them. The key there is you need to do a uh, lymph node dissection, a lymph node harvest. So again, the duodenal mucosa, small, you can do the nucleation, paraduodenal lymph node dissection. Um, five centimeters or smaller in the head and pancreas, you can do any nucleation, but again, you have to get the lymph nodes. Anything larger than that, anything invasive, you have to do a formal resection, which would either involve a Whipple or a distal pancreatectomy. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about glucagonoma. Uh, Tell us a few key points. Yeah, so glucagonomas are mostly malignant, so 90% of these are malignant. Their most common location is the tail of the pancreas. Uh, as far as their presentation, think of the four Ds, dermatitis, diabetes, depression, and DVTs. Uh, the DVTs are secondary to a factor 10-like antigen that's secreted by this tumor. Uh, characteristic, of glucog- characteristic of glucogonomas is a skin rash. It's called necrolytic migratory erythema. And I've actually seen questions where they show you a patient with this uh, skin rash and then the most common finding in terms of a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor associated with the skin rash is the glucogonoma. Uh, yeah, so definitely, if you don't know what it looks like, the uh, uh, necrolytic migratory erythema, uh, Google it, uh, Google image it, uh, make sure you sear that in your brain because it, it might show up as an image on, on the test. Um, so how do you uh, make the diagnosis? 
So for diagnosis, you want to do. Uh, so for diagnosis, you want to check for glucose intolerance uh, with a fasting glucagon level that's between one thousand and five thousand. Okay, and as with everything, you make your diagnosis is positive. How do you localize? Mm-hmm. So same sequence. Start with a triphasic CT or an MRI. Uh, second, you can do the somatostatin receptor scintigraphy. Again, remember for insulinomas, this is not effective, but for glucagonomas, it is effective. Uh, third, use your endoscopic ultrasound. And fourth, you can do selective visceral angiography. Yeah, so ho- hopefully people are noticing a theme when it comes to, there's, there's a lot of overlap when it comes to approaching these, trying to sort them out, trying to localize them. Um, okay, so let's, you found it. Uh, how do you treat it? So the big thing to remember here is no enucleation. There is a high malignant potential, uh, so you will not be able to do a simple enucleation procedure like your insulinoma or your uh, gastrinoma. For glucagonomas, you're going to do a re- you're going to do a resection with the regional lymphadenectomy. Usually, this is a distal pancreatectomy. Uh, and uh, remember, as far as the uh, symptoms that this patient presented with. And you're going to do a cholecystectomy due to the prolonged need for somatostatin therapy. Again, yeah, it's a 90% malignant, so you treat this as a malignancy. So you do a formal resection. Um, like you said, it, they're most commonly associated or located in the tail, so distal pancreatectomy is most likely going to be your procedure. Um, and you think about some adjuvant therapies, it's going to be somatostatin. So if you're going to be treating someone with somatostatin, you need to be sure to take their gallbladder out. Um, it's not a very kind thing to do to leave it in and then give them somatostatin because they will develop gallstones. Great. Okay. Uh, moving on with these, there's a lot of them. So somatostatinoma, uh, John, uh, walk us through it. What are they? How do they behave? Somatostatinoma, uh, secretes somatostatin, which it turns everything off in the, it's inhibitory activity in the GI tract. The majority of these tumors are actually malignant. They're most commonly found in the head of the pancreas. Uh, you can also find them in the, in the, the second uh, portion of the duodenum. Uh, and they can be associated with cholecystitis, diabetes mellitus, mellitus uh, malabsorption, and steroidia. Yep. So again, you think just if you know what the biological agent does, you can predict what the clinical uh, syndrome is going to be. So again, cholecystitis, diabetes, malabsorption, steatorrhea, it's the green somatostatin. It makes sense. Um, okay. Uh, how do you go about, uh, finding these? So like all the other peanuts, triphasic CT or MRI, uh, scintography, uh, endoscopic ultrasound and selective angiography, or excuse me, selective arteriography. If you cannot find it after that. Yep. These are all just variations on a theme. Okay. So treatment, you said they're mostly malignant. So what's the treatment going to be? You want to resect them with regional lymphadenectomy. And because you don't want to enucleate these similar to the, uh, uh the gluconomas because of high malignant potential. And? And cholecystectomy. Cholecystectomy. This one just makes sense. So you have the elevated levels of somatostatin, you're going to have gallbladder pathology. Um, so cholecystectomy in addition to resection. Uh, okay, woo, a VIP-OMA. VIP-OMA. What is that? How does it behave? Where is it located? So VIP-OMAs are mostly malignant. They're most commonly located in the body or the tail of the pancreas. Uh, do note, though, that extra pancreatic locations are possible. Uh, and with these, you want to think about the adrenal, the retroperitoneum, and the mediastinum. Uh, they are associated with a WDHA syndrome, which is watery diarrhea, hypokalemia, and achlorhydria. Yep, and they'll, they'll, they'll give you that patient, and they'll tell you uh, what diagnostic test you want to run. 
So here you want to check a fasting VIP level, which will be elevated uh, when diarrhea is present. And how do you localize? So same thing. Start with a triphasic CT or MRI. Uh, then move on to somatostatin receptor scintigraphy. Uh, third is endoscopic ultrasound. And fourth is selective arteriography. Treatment. Treatment is resection with a regional lymphadenectomy. Again, no enucleation due to the high malignant potential. And close out with a cholecystectomy. Yep. Again, these are patients that you might use somatostatin for adjuvant therapy. It's malignant. You got to resect it. Um, so, uh, and, and you definitely want to add that cholecystectomy. Okay. We are done with our pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. Um, yep. Go back and listen to that one three or four times. Get that seared in your memory. It's all just variations on a theme. And again, know where they are, know how they behave, um, and um, know what the clinical uh, syndrome is associated with them. If you know what the biological uh, agent does, you know how it affects uh, the individual. Okay, so big topic next, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. This could be a podcast in and of itself, but we're just going to cover some highlights that uh, you need to know for your boards. So, John, what are some risk factors for pancreatic adenocarcinoma? So, cigarette smoking, heavy alcohol use, uh, history of chronic pancreatitis, uh, patient with increased BMI, and long-standing, uh, long-standing diabetes. Okay, and uh, how do you want to, a lot of times, you know, the patients either present with signs of uh, obstruction, or these are found incidentally in cross-sectional imaging. What kind of imaging do you want to make sure you have when you're evaluating these? Yeah, like you mentioned, these patients will, you know, typically present with painless jaundice is the pathognomonic for pancreatic adenocarcinoma, but you would get a pancreatic protocol CT. Um, this will eventually lead you to uh, endoscopy with possible endoscopic ultrasound, and then you can do a um, uh, biopsies of any questionable lymph nodes or area, uh, anything in that area. And then if you are you have diagnosed your pancreatic adenocarcinoma and you are concerned for metastases, you want to further work these patients out with a PET-CT. Yeah, so this is all goes into you know part of our staging algorithm. You know, We're trying to decide uh, whether or not uh, a particular lesion is resectable or not. So you certainly need your pancreatic protocol um, uh, a CT. Um, you'll need a, a CT oncology or a CT chest abdomen pelvis looking for any signs of metastasis. Uh, if there's question of some lymph nodes evolved, certainly endoscopic ultrasound with selective biopsy may be useful. Again, you're, you're just trying to find out if this is something we can operate on or not. And then PET-CT is used selectively. What about the role of, uh, you have a concerning lesion in the pancreas, you think it's maybe pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Uh, John, what's the role of, of biopsy? A biopsy is a, is a helpful adjunct if you hit it, but a pathologic diagnosis is not required prior to resection. It is needed uh, prior to new adjuvant therapy or um, if you have an unresectable mass prior to definitive chemotherapy. Yeah, this is one of those things if you have, if, if the clinical scenario fits and the imaging fits, you proceed immediately to resection. You don't need a biopsy. If, on the other hand, there's maybe some diagnostic uncertainty or maybe you're, it's unresectable, um, certainly your, your medical and radiation oncologists are not going to treat them without a tissue diagnosis, so it is useful there. But uh, as part of your staging, not necessary. Um, okay, what about, um, okay, you have a lesion that you think is resectable on imaging. Um, it appears um, consistent with a pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Uh, you decide you're going to resect it. What's the role of a staging laparoscopy? Staging laparoscopy is something that, you know, will come up in M&M a lot where it's like, why didn't you look with a scope first? 
but it's controversial. Uh, most, a lot of people will use it routinely. Uh, some people will use it selectively in patients that are high risk for disseminated disease. Um, you have patients based on imaging uh, uh, modalities that you have possibly borderline resectable, a very high 199 or a uh, large primary tumor um, if you have a many regional lymph nodes and if the patient's very symptomatic. Yeah, again, as we mentioned before, a lot of these controversial things not likely to show up on boards, but it's important to know that it's an option, um, and some people do it routinely. Uh, okay, another thing that frequently comes up, you said that these patients often, uh, or John, you said these patients often present with uh, painless jaundice. Woo. Uh, so you have a patient, painless jaundice, has a pancreatic head mass. Uh, what's the role of uh, biliary drainage? It's like stenting procedures. What, what's the role of that in these patients? So yeah, although it's true that they presented with symptoms of obstructive jaundice, there is actually no effect of survival uh, in terms of preoperative biliary drainage. Uh, but the preoperative biliary drainage is associated with increased wound infection rates. So generally, you're not going to do it. Uh, for resectable disease in patients not undergoing new adjuvant therapy, you might consider if the patient has profound pruritus, cholangitis, or ha- has coagulopathy. Uh, and again, in patients who are undergoing new adjuvant therapy and, and you're not going to go on to surgery first, uh, if they have profound jaundice, it might be a consideration. Right. So if you have a resectable disease and you have um, uh, obstructed duct, in uh, a, a patient that's otherwise ready for surgery, just proceed to surgery. There's no, there's no indication for preoperative biliary drainage. In fact, it may lead to higher rates of infection. Uh, so again, you're going to look if the patient is severe, you know, significantly symptomatic from their uh, from their jaundice, pruritus. You may consider it, especially if it's going to be a little while before you're able to proceed with resection. Um, so there's a couple different kind of stents out there. There's plastic stents, there are metal stents. Let's say you do have a patient that you are going to put a stent in. What's the preferred stent and what's the difference? So the best type of stent to choose would be a self-expanding metal stent. Uh, and the reason these are preferred is because, one, they're easy to place without dilation. And two, they tend to have longer patency rates than the plastic stents. And third, they don't interfere with the subsequent resection. Right. So if you are going to stent, if the patient's if, you know, symptomatic, they're going for new adjuvant therapy, the self-expanding mental stent would, would probably be the, the correct answer there. So when we think about these patients, we break them up into, when we think about patients' resectability, we break it up into resectable, borderline resectable, and unresectable. John, what's considered resectable pancreatic adenocarcinoma? A resectable tumor is a tumor that has no arterial contact less than 180 degrees of contact with the SMV or portal vein without any vein contour irregularity. Perfect. Uh, so again, no, art- no arterial contact or less than 180 degree contact with the SMV and portal, portal vein contact. You want to look at that CT. You want to make sure that there's no uh, contour irregularity, which would indicate invasion into the, the vascular structure. Woo, what's borderline resectable? So for the borderline resectable patient, think about that patient with tumor contact with the SMA or celiac that is less than 180 degrees, uh, or tumor contact with the common hepatic only, so no celiac or proper hepatic arterial involvement, uh, which would allow for subsequent resection and reconstruction, uh, or you could have involvement of the SMV or portal vein that is amenable to resection and reconstruction. Finally, you, you might have certain cases where there is tumor contact with the IVC that might be considered borderline resectable. Yeah, okay. And John, uh, unresectable? So any patient with distant metastases, 
Uh, if you have greater than 180 degree contact with the SMA or celiac, uh, or if you don't have, if you have an unreconstructable involvement of the SMV or portal vein, or it depends what surgeon you're operating with. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, um, again, they're probably not going to get, they may give you a tumor and ask if it's resectable or if it's unresectable. I doubt they're going to give you one of those borderline resectable type of scenarios. It's either going to be pretty cut and cut and dry. Um, but certainly, uh, any arterial contact or anything that's invading a vein that's not resectable, that would be unresectable. And those were the common situations I would look for on the boards. Okay. Uh, Wu, um, what are your kind of treatment uh, options when it comes to pancreatic adenocarcinoma? Yeah. So let's start with, uh, the topic of, of primary surgery and when patients might benefit from surgery. Uh, so if you have patients that have a distal tumor, Again, remember that these patients are presenting typically without symptoms at first, and so they present late and are usually too advanced at the time of diagnosis for resection. But if they are amenable to resection, that would be a distal pancreatectomy and splenectomy. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the location is going to is going to depend a lot, or is going to affect how these tumors behave and the treatment for them. So let's say you have a resectable tumor at the head of the pancreas. What's your procedure? In that case, the procedure would be a Whipple procedure or, or a pancreatic duodenectomy. Okay, Sean, let's say you're in the operating room. Uh, you thought the tumor was resectable, but now you've, you've found, you're already in the operating room, your abdomen's open, uh, and you've, you can feel that there's invasion into the celiac um, uh, trunk. What, uh, what do you want to think about in that situation? So this is important to note the patient's symptoms prior to going to the operating room. So if you do find a patient that is unresectable, you may want to consider a couple of different things. The first thing is a consider a palliative biliary bypass um, if you're having obstructive jaundice, as well as a gastrogenosity if you're actually having obstruction the patient cannot eat. Or if they're having a significant amount of pain, you want to consider a celiac plexus neurolysis. Perfect. Um, and we mentioned this already, but uh, woo. So let's say there is some. You get in the operating room, and there is some uh, portal venous or some SMV uh, uh, involvement. Uh, what do you want to think about, and what are some key um, uh, key things to know about that disease process? Yeah, so you're really going to benefit the patient most by doing that full R zero resection, and if that results in you getting into that portal vein or SMV, uh, just make sure you follow that up with resection and reconstruction of those venous structures. All right, let's move on a little to a little bit of uh, perioperative therapy. So woo, who, who gets neoadjuvant therapy? So for perioperative therapy, this includes both chemo and radiation. But for neoadjuvant therapy, you should consider this in patients with borderline resectable disease. And again, as Jason mentioned earlier, you need that EUS with FNA for a tissue diagnosis prior to starting this. Yep. So that's one of the indications for getting a biopsy, which, uh, like I said, we don't you don't need before you resect. But if you have something that's borderline resectable um, or unresectable, obviously, and you need to give some uh, some uh, chemo radiation, you're going to need a tissue diagnosis. So neoadjuvant chemo rads for people who have borderline resectable disease. Good. Um, and to go back again, that's somebody you may consider uh, uh, decompressing the barrier system if they're symptomatic for that, if somebody's getting neoadjuvant therapy. So, John, let's say after, what about after you do your resection, you have an R0 resection, um, who gets adjuvant therapy? So, somebody once told me that the Whipple procedure for pancreatic carcinoma is actually just a palliative procedure. So, everyone gets adjuvant therapy. And generally, this is fulfirinox, fulonic acid, uh, fluorouracil, irenodine. 
TCAN, and oxyplatin. Perfect. Okay, so that that is our quick kind of what you need down and dirty, what you need to know for the boards of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Certainly an expansive topic that we could spend a lot of time on. Um, so that is wrapping up our pancreas discussion. Let's move on to our quick hits. So Wu, a patient with a history of multiple episodes of pancreatitis now presents with hematemesis. What are you thinking? So think about gastric varices from splenic vein thrombosis. The treatment is splenectomy. Yep. So your most common cause of splenic vein thrombosis is pancreatitis. Uh, That results in gastric varices. Splenectomy um, is uh, curative of those. Okay, John, you have a patient with with multiple branch duct IPMNs on imaging. There are multiple small benign appearing cysts throughout the proximal pancreatic body with a larger dominant one, more distally, and worrisome features. So you have multiple APNs, multiple branch. You have one that looks worrisome. How do you deal with that patient? So you want to resect the most dominant distal lesion, uh, and you can leave the smaller ones, uh, the smaller benign ones, likely benign ones, behind, and but they'll just need surveillance. Yeah, and that's important to know because there's mul- these branch chain IPMNs frequently present with multiple cysts. So you kind of have to know how to approach that. Okay, woo. Uh, 48-year-old uh, patient incidentally diagnosed with a 2-centimeter branch chain IPMN on abdominal CT. She has microcytic anemia on her laboratory workup. And what else does she need as part of her workup? So cluing in on that anemia, the patient needs, in a, a, the patient needs a colonoscopy. Why? So recall that IPMN patients have a higher incidence of extra pancreatic malignancies, and most commonly, this is colonic adenocarcinoma. Very good. Very good. So, John, we talked extensively about uh, neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas. Uh, What is a syndrome that's associated that we used to think about when we think about neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas? So you have to think of MEN1, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. So usually uh, the tumors associated with this syndrome actually are non-functional, but the most common functional tumor is a gastronoma. Just a reminder, the most common uh, PNET tumor overall is a non-functional, and the most common uh, functional tumor outside of of MEN1 is an insulinoma. Right. So that's a, you have to be very careful about how those questions are worded and, and what you're going to answer there. So just know that inside out. So woo. Uh, patient presents with episodes of fasting hypoglycemia and dizziness that resolved with glucose administration. What is that? So I'm assuming the C-peptide here is going to be low. The no, don't worry about that. Just what is that, that, those three things? What's the name of that triad? Whipple's triad. Okay. So let's, then you mentioned C-peptide. So we check the C-peptide. The C-peptide is low. What's your diagnosis? So here you got to think about exogenous insulin administration. So it's a factitious disorder. Okay. What if the C-peptide was high? John, uh, so what's your medical management of a functional neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas? Either preoperative or postoperatively, it's octreotide, except for insulinomas who do not uh, respond either to uh, do not respond to somatostatin and cannot be localized using the somatostatin scintigraphy. Yep. So insulinoma is a little bit unique when it comes to neuroendocrine tumors and the fact that you can't localize it with a somatostatin scan. And it makes sense then that it doesn't have somatostatin receptors, so it's not going to respond to octreotide. Uh, so woo, what are some mutations associated with pancreatic adenocarcinoma? These, these can be, these for some reason show up every once in a while, um, especially in written boards type scenarios. So the top four you want to think about are KRAS, uh, P53, CDKN2A, and SMAD4. 
Yeah, I think most commonly seen the K-Raz and the P53, but certainly those other two are, are, are the ones that uh, if you're the 100th percentile person instead of the 99th percentile person, you may need to know those. Okay, uh, John, biomarkers associated with uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Well, there are a lot of them, but the only one I can think of really on top of my head is CA199. Yeah, that's the, the most, that's the one you need to know. That's the one that's the most validated and most clinically useful. Uh, okay, woo. Uh, so during a, uh, a Whipple procedure for pancreatic adenocarcinoma, you encounter a clinically positive lymph node uh, outside the field of resection. Uh, you're going to have several options. Should you leave it alone? Should you perform a regional lymph adenectomy? Should you sample the node but not perform the complete regional lymph adenectomy? What, what should you do? So you should sample the node but not perform the complete regional lymphadenectomy. Why is that? The reason is that nodal metastasis, it's a marker of systemic disease. And so removing the node is unlikely to alter the overall survival. And really, outside of a clinical trial, a regional lymphadenectomy should not be performed during the Whipple. Especially on the boards. You, I'm, and I, for me, that's one of the hardest parts. I think that the exam actually got harder as uh, I went up in my residency because I started seeing people doing more and more things. And when I got to a question, I would be like, well, doctor so-and-so would do it this way. Doctor so-and-so would do it this way. But for the boards, that's absolutely correct. Um, that's the right answer. Uh, all right. Well, that wraps it up. That's been our, that was a big topic, but we got through it. Um, that was our pancreas review for abside and the boards.